They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Our victory then, in the midst of this warfare, all this craziness, our victory is in Jesus. And in our testimony, our confession, both through mouth and through heart and through life, our confession that we belong to him and that no matter what happens, he is Lord. That's how you overcome. That's how you triumph. Through the blood of the lamb, not by your own strength, your own might, your own power, through worldly wisdom or anything the world has to offer or the world systems or any of that, you triumph one way and one way only through the blood of the lamb. Through the one who was born to this woman, from whom the time he was born, this great dragon is trying to devour. The darkness is trying to overcome the light, but a light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not been able to overcome it. You know, I, I've, I love that video. Um, gosh, it's, it was used that way back in the day, an old Christmas Eve service, and uh, just brought, I wanted to bring it back this morning to hopefully make you laugh, which obviously that, that uh, was accomplished, and also to kind of set the table for my message, because uh, that video communicates, it's awesome, and it's awesome on so many levels, it's awesome, um, but it does communicate, you know, this truth that uh, the ways that we most often represent the birth of Jesus are generally speaking uh, what I would call like fluffy and cute. Uh, you know, different nativity scenes have variations on the specifics, but what we typically observe is some combination of uh, serene-looking angels singing softly, shepherds and their cuddly little sheep, and the perfect mood lighting, courtesy of that glowing star, a collection of adorable barnyard animals, courtesy of the local petting zoo, uh, and of course, the attractive young couple welcoming their first child. And this is the sort of thing uh, that fills our hearts with gladness as we curl up by a crackling fire or, you know, the Netflix fire uh, thingamajigger, uh, drinking hot chocolate and listening to Mariah Carey's Christmas album for the thousandth time, you know? And in other words, these are the warm and fuzzy sentiments of Christmas. And that's all good. That's okay. I love that stuff. I, I love uh, being in our basement um, and having the we have a couple smaller Christmas trees down there and having those lit and watching some classic Christmas movie and just hanging out. I love the nostalgia. I love the warm, fuzzy, sort of just the glow of all that. I think that's great, and I'm not saying that any of that is wrong or bad because it certainly isn't. Um, but the truth is that there is much, much more to the Christmas story uh, as we know it than meets the eye. And the much more that I'm talking about is neither fluffy nor is it particularly cute. Um, you can go ahead and show that next slide. Far from the imagery, you know, of this standard precious moments, uh, baby in a manger scene, and I'm not trying to hate on precious moments uh, or anything, but far from this sort of this imagery, there was something going on at that first Christmas uh, that has been drowned out. And it's not been drowned out by our culture, but instead it's been drowned out by the church itself. Uh, and it's that something that I'd like to focus on this morning as we close out the year as far as our Sunday morning gatherings go, this being our last Sunday morning of the year. So with that in mind, we're going to look uh, at a text that is not one you generally will hear read at a candlelit Christmas Eve service as Silent Night is sung. Uh, but it's just as much, believe it or not, it is just as much a traditional Christmas text. 
in the sense that it's directly talking about Christmas and applying to Christmas. It's just as traditional in that sense as Luke's classic birth narrative is that is more than often not read at said services. So let's go through this together. If you, I don't want you guys to put it up yet for one second, but if you have a Bible or if you have a phone and you can use your Bible app on your phone without doing anything else, like scrolling through Facebook or whatever, then I will let you open your phone app on your Bible or Bible app on your phone um, and turn to Revelation. Turn to Re- the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and we're going to go to Revelation chapter 12. We're going to cover a lot of ground in this chapter, and I'm going to start at the beginning, and I'm going to jump around a little bit here and there, and that's why I want you to have it open because you're probably going to want to like look in between and just kind of see and follow along. Also, maybe helpful post-service to kind of review it. So let's start with this classic Christmas text that most of you have never heard before uh, from Revelation 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 to start. And here we go. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. It goes without saying that a giant, red, seven-headed, ten-horned dragon is not a part of most nativity scenes, especially placed somewhere as if it's trying to devour the baby Jesus. This image, this reality certainly falls outside the scope of your standard manger scene. My guess is you've never seen one like that. I've seen nativity scenes that inexplicably had Santa landing on top of the, you know, the area where Jesus was born, which is like really, really like, you know, blasphemous and whatnot. But like, I've never seen the, the dragon one, even though it's here. But the reality is this passage speaks directly to something that's far too often neglected and ignored, but that we as Jesus followers must keep in mind at this time of the year. And it's this truth. I have it on the screen. It's Christmas is about spiritual warfare. Christmas is about spiritual warfare. And to clarify... I'm not talking about whether your cashier at Target says Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays, okay? I don't care if they say to have a wonderful Kwanzaa or Happy Festivus, although I would really like the latter of those two if you're a Seinfeld fan. What I'm talking about, though, is something different. What I'm talking about is this. When I say Christmas is about spiritual warfare, we need to remember that since the serpent, Satan, first appeared in the Garden of Eden and deceived Eve, 
the world has been immersed in a great spiritual battle. You know, the Bible talks frequently about this, frequently, yet most of the church in the West seems to place it out of sight and out of mind. Some people have no framework for this, and that might be you. You have no idea what I'm talking about when I say Christmas is about spiritual warfare. So some people have no framework for this, and some give it lip service, like, yeah, I know what you mean, there's this conflict going on, but ultimately they shy away from it, the realities of it, the things that it involves, because spiritual warfare sounds far too charismatic and Pentecostal, right, for us, and it's those weird people that talk about, you know, a demon in every car that won't start or something like that, and so we, we shy away from it. But the truth is this, Christmas is about spiritual warfare, We have an enemy. He is deceptive. He is crafty. He is dangerous. And this is why the scriptures paint him in Revelation 12 as a great red dragon and in other places as a roaring lion seeking to devour whom he may. This is why Jesus himself referred to him as a liar and the father of lies and a murderer who was a murderer from the very beginning. This is why the author of Hebrews talked about how apart from Jesus, Satan holds us prisoner to the fear of death. And it's why Paul called Satan the God of this world. In some translations, it says the God of this present age. Not former, not past, not once, present age, the God of this present age, the one who permeates the air in our culture in the year 2021 as we get ready to turn the calendar to 2022. He is the ultimate thief, John 10, 10 tells us, who is looking to kill and to steal and destroy, to wreak havoc, to bring chaos to cause confusion, to isolate, to do whatever he can to go against the kingdom of God. If he can, he'll devour through the tricks of a witch doctor in some remote region of Africa, and we think of that as spiritual warfare on some level, and we get that, but he'll also devour and does so almost, I would say, more often through the pride, the comfort, and the complacency that so often permeate North America and the church in North America. Here's the truth. Another one. Even though he's been defeated, speaking of Satan, he rages in war. And we, we are born into this war. So when you are born, you are born into a war zone. You are born into a place of great conflict. This is not a place of peace. Right? We sing peace on earth and goodwill to men, and that's what we desire, and that's what part of bringing the kingdom is about. That's what Jesus will establish one day, once and for all. But in the here and now, it is not peace. Jesus himself talked about this, that he didn't come to necessarily bring peace, but the sword. There's always this tension that exists, and you are born into this, whether you recognize it or not. And one of the things the enemy wants to make sure that you do, do or don't do is that you don't recognize it that you aren't sufficiently sensible of the conditions, that you aren't aware of what's going on around you. And instead, you're sort of just numb and dull, and you're okay with Christmas being cute and fuzzy and warm and cuddly, but you miss and 
Don't recognize what was really going on those 2,000, 20 plus years ago. You are born into this war, and that's when you, before you're a Christian, and before you really have any knowledge or understanding of what's going on, it's just a reality. But, and when you're born again, you're born again into this war, and you live in this war until Jesus returns and stomps out the enemy forever. So when you're born again, the idea is that your eyes are open and you suddenly see things differently and you recognize that you were once a part of the dominion of darkness and now you've been transferred into the kingdom of light, but you recognize also that light and darkness are constantly battling it out. Hopefully you realize this. Hopefully as you read the scriptures and you understand what's going on, you recognize this. Paul says that we don't battle flesh and blood. We don't battle flesh and blood. It's principalities and powers and the rulers of this present age and the things that are influencing and causing people to think a certain way, deceptive mindsets, hollow and deceptive philosophies, all these things that are going on. You are born into this war. I talked about this several weeks back that no one who is, you know, serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs and the mentality that we're to adopt as we understand this, that we're born again into this war and we live in this war until Jesus returns and stomps out the enemy forever. We see all of this within the context of Revelation 12 for our Savior King's birth. So let's take an in-depth look at this text. We're going to go through this, not necessarily line by line and verse by verse, but pretty in-depth here in the next probably 20 minutes or so. So in Revelation 12, 1 through 6, John had a vision of a woman in labor pains. If you have that, keep looking at it. Of a vision, a vision, excuse me, of a woman in labor pains. This is no ordinary woman. We're told that she is clothed with the sun, resting her feet on the moon, and wearing a crown of 12 stars. This is a great woman who is meant to rule. And no, for those of you that grew up Catholic, it's not Mary that it's being talked about here. People think that. It's not, though. The 12 stars gives us an indication of who it is. This woman represents Old Testament Israel. These are the people of God, God's chosen that he set apart. People to whom God promised in Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, for you will be, for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is Exodus, early Old Testament, covenant language between God and the nation of Israel. The woman clothed with the sun, resting her feet on the moon, and the 12 stars, the 12 tribes of Israel are represented there. Kingdom of priests, if you understand what that means, it's, it has, it's language that, regarding a people who are intended and meant to rule. Peter, in the New Testament, applied this exact passage from Exodus 19 to the New Testament church. After Jesus conquered death and ascended to heaven, he describes us So he borrows language from Moses in Exodus. He describes us, the church, pagan Gentiles who are far off. He describes us as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
Now, in doing so, what he's not doing, and this is important because some people miss this and get this all twisted, what he's not doing is not saying that Israel is no longer a kingdom of priests or a holy nation and that we've somehow usurped them or taken their place. He's not saying that. He's saying that they still remain that, but now we outsiders have also been grafted in. We've become a part of this. And through Jesus, we are more than conquerors. And we get to join in with God's chosen people from the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, as those who get to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, those intended to rule. And that language permeates the New Testament as we talk about, not just here, but our future destiny too. So he borrows this language. So going back to Revelation and John's vision, this ruling woman, the nation of Israel, who obviously we understand is represented by Mary, whose husband was part of the line of David. And there's stuff I could go into there that would take the rest of the morning, but there's so much symbolism and beauty in this. But in John's vision, this ruling woman is about to give birth to his male child who will, and we're told, rule all nations. If you're back in Revelation 12, I read this earlier, rule all nations with an iron scepter, an iron rod, some translations may say. And this child, we understand now in hindsight, looking back, this child that John is speaking of, of is none other than Jesus. Don't go there, but in Revelation 19, seven chapters later, I'll put this on the screen, John talks some more about this vision, and he gives, gives a little bit more shape to it. Helps us see that who he was talking about seven chapters earlier is Jesus. And he says it like this in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. I just love, I just love this little passage, by the way. It's such powerful imagery. There before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Do you notice how Faithful and True are capitalized? Right? So he's referring to, to, to God, to Jesus, part of the Trinity. Faithful and True. I am the way, the truth. It's faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And here's where we know for absolute fact it's Jesus. And his name is the Word of God. Remember, this is John, the Apostle John, writing in Revelation 19. John 1, this whole series of light shines is based around. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. So he's hearkening back to the same language. His name is the word of God. His name is Jesus. So we have this clear picture. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses. Just to picture this in your head. And dressed in fine linen, white and clean. It will be the first time in my life where I wear white, clean linens, Right? Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Oh, here we go. He will rule them with an iron scepter. So seven chapters later, he takes that prophecy and brings it in. He's combining all this. It's beautiful. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. It's the old, that old song you've probably heard. 
before that comes from Revelation 19, Battle Hymn of the Republic, right? He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Now, I want you to catch this. This is important, this last verse. On his robe, okay, so he's wearing a robe, important, even more important, on his robe and on his thigh, okay? He has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why is it important that it's not on his robe, but it's on his thigh? Super important. What that's telling us is that Jesus has a tattoo. I'm just saying, like, you want to, what would Jesus do? He would, you know, he's got a tat. Um, at least one. There's actually another part in Ezekiel where he talks about, God says, is, you know, he's engraved us on the palms of his hands. A couple tats. So, okay. Sorry, I, like, made you think that was a super deep point, and then I just messed with you. But it is important. So, let's go back, okay, to verse 4 in Revelation 12. Okay. So I told you we're jumping around. That's why I wanted you to keep your place. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. So you have the nation of Israel who in covenant relationship with God has been promised through, for a long time, a Messiah, a deliverer, one who would set them free from oppression. And they've longed for this day. The prophets have talked about it. They've prayed about it. They, they, everything is centered around it. Their hopes are placed in it. That someday this would happen. And John says, this, this holy nation, this royal priesthood, represented by Joseph and Mary, are, they're giving birth to the son, the one who will rule with an iron scepter, their deliverer, their long-awaited Messiah. And as this is going on, this is Christmas, guys. As this is going on, as this beautiful, precious moments nativity scene is playing itself out, all the while, there is a red, seven-headed dragon, right, that is trying to devour this child. And you say, well, wait, how did, what, what did that look like? Well, we have a real clear picture of at least one way in which he attempted to do this. Satan's attempts to destroy Jesus started right around the time of his birth. Now, it was probably when he was about two years old. So you have to understand biblical time and the way they use language. It's not always the way we describe it. And you can think of it this way. Sometimes you'll say, I'll be back in just a sec, right? You don't mean literally one second, right? You understand that's a short period of time. So he was trying to destroy Jesus in the very beginning. We see this destruction happen and an event that took place likely about two years after Jesus was born. Now, we think, and we have this all messed up, we think that it happened at the same time he was born, but it's not. It's when the wise men show up, the magi. When they show up, it was probably about two years after Jesus was born, not at his birth. There's all kinds of proof to that. But when they show up, they come, and what do they do? They go into Herod's court, who was king at the time, and they say, we've We've seen this star, and there, we know that this is signaling that there is now a new king who's been born to Israel, new king of the Jews. Well, Herod's actual title was king of the Jews. So when they come, and if you, I had a whole thing I was going to do with the Magi today, but it takes forever. But when you understand who these guys were and how long it took them to get there and where they came from and how they would have shown up, it says that the whole town was terrified and Herod with them. They were nervous. 
And so they're saying there's a new king of the Jews. Well, Herod, if you know anything about this guy, was nuts. He had members of his own royal family executed because he was paranoid. And so he instantly is freaked out. So he lies to them, right? Well, tell me where he's at so I can come and worship him as well, which we know isn't true because then what does he do? He orders the execution of any, and this is why we know it was around two years, he orders the execution of any child two years old and under. Now it would, if Jesus was just born, he wouldn't need to go up to two years. But we know that it was around that time frame. So from the time Jesus was born, Satan's at work. And even though these wise men are drawn by this incredible star and there's this beautiful thing happening as they pursue Jesus, at the same time, Satan is using Herod. So he, try, he, he commands the slaughter of every child in the, in the town of Nazareth under the age of two, which at the time we know, just for the record, it would have been less than 20. Not that that changes it, but sometimes we think of it as like a genocide, and it wasn't. It was a very, very small area, but it's still significant. So those continued, I'm sorry, he continued to try to destroy Jesus. I'm sorry, he started when Jesus was born. Then he continued to try to to destroy Jesus at the start of Jesus' ministry. If you remember, he's baptized. Powerful, powerful moment, apex moment for Jesus at the time. And instantly he's led into the wilderness and Satan tempts then, Jesus then tries to destroy him. He tempts him with the following things. Comfort. Tempts him with comfort. Tempts him with power. And he tempts him with an easy path to the throne that did not involve the cross. So he's trying to destroy Jesus. Didn't work at his birth. Jesus was able to escape to Egypt. He didn't know maybe that Jesus was a refugee. Lived in Egypt for quite a long time before he was able to return safely after Herod's death. They escaped. Now Jesus has tried to destroy, be destroyed again some 30 years later. We know that he resisted the temptation, and then it says that Satan left him until an opportune time. So he knew, okay, he, he got me there, but I'm going to wait till he's weak, wait till he's vulnerable, and I'm going to come back. And most every scholar, people that have studied the Bible, believe that moment was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's trying to tempt him to, to not go to the cross. This attempt to destroy Jesus, though, does culminate when Satan fills Judas to betray Jesus, which of course ends with Jesus being nailed to the cross. So Satan couldn't get to Jesus directly through Jesus, so he goes around him, first through Herod and then through Judas. But after the crucifixion comes the resurrection and the ascension. So Revelation 12, 5, this little line in there that you may miss says her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So this is talking about after the resurrection, Jesus ascends in the presence of many of his disciples. He was snatched up to God and to his throne. We know that he's seated at the right hand of God. We know that when Stephen, right, became the first martyr, that he had a vision of Jesus actually rising and standing from his throne at the right hand of God. So he was snatched up to God and to his throne. What all this means There's a lot of going on here, and I get that, but what all this means is that a plan that others intended for evil, God the Father intended for good. So Satan's attempting to destroy him, to do all these things. And by all appearances, by all assumptions, even those of those who've been very close to Jesus, Satan succeeded. 
But we know that there is much more to the story. We know that Jesus was resurrected and triumphed. So what was intended for evil, God the Father intended for good. Paul puts it like this, that they had, I'm going to paraphrase, that they had known who it was they were killing. And what they were accomplishing in doing so, they never would have done it. Right? Because Satan ends up essentially destroying himself without recognizing it. In Revelation 12, 7, if you're there, I haven't read this part yet, and I'm about to. In Revelation 12, 7, John saw the vision shift. So if you remember, I read verses 1 through 6, and all this imagery of what's going on, and then the vision shifts in 12, 7 through 9. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. So again, the red dragon. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. What this looks like, I have no clue. What heavenly wars look like, I have no clue. And I don't think anybody does because they're not described. They're just given from Old Testament to New. They're just described as they fought. We have no idea what it, what it looked like, but I'm sure it was pretty intense. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he, being the dragon, was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. Everybody say, yay. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent, now we're giving definition to it, to him. The ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth, and his angels with him. He was hurled to earth. Catch that? Not hell. Hurled to earth. And his angels with him. Now, we're not given a related time frame. This is where there's just some mystery that we have to trust and start to really read between the lines here. We're not given a related time frame, but we're told that Michael and his angels went on the attack against the dragon and his angels. The Bible does not say much about Michael, right? Michael was a very popular angel in a lot of uh, Catholic imagery. A lot of, you see Michael represented a lot, but the truth is we don't know a lot about him. Uh, Jude, the book of Jude, a little short one-chapter book, called him an archangel. An archangel fits the description of an angel who's leading another band of angels in war. So he's like a general. He's like a captain. He's like a commander. He's high up. Did you know there are different levels of power of angels? Some angels are stronger than others, and as a result, some demons are stronger than others. There's a way of authority in all of which this goes. So we know that Michael is an archangel, a commander. Daniel wrote about Michael at the end of his book. There he's called, and I'm quoting from Daniel. You don't need to go there, but the great prince who protects God's people. So we know that he's a commander high up, and Daniel describes him with some pretty powerful language, that he's a great prince who protects God's people, and he's one of the chief princes. Another line from the book of Daniel. Daniel leaves a lot open for interpretation, but the book seems to paint a picture that as a part of the world's spiritual warfare, each nation has a spiritual ruler over it. Isn't that interesting? We don't battle flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and the rulers of this present age. 
Satan is oftentimes not at work just through individuals. In fact, I see that less often than I see through systems, through schools of thought, through philosophies, through things that you can't even nail down where it came from. But like all of a sudden, all these people think this way and act this way, and it's, there seems to be like something that's like a shroud over them. They just can't see. And the Bible talks about this a lot. That as a part of the spiritual warfare, each nation has a spiritual ruler over it. Persia, we're told in Daniel, the, there's a big kingdom at the time. Persia had a prince who Michael had to help fight against. So there was a, essentially a demonic prince over this kingdom. And when Daniel prayed, Michael had to battle against this prince. There were some other angels, if you read, and I know I'm going pretty deep here this morning, but it's important. There were some other angels that were sent out to answer Daniel's prayer, and they couldn't break through on their own. Which is crazy to think about when they fought the prince of Persia. So Michael has to come and assist them. Again, I don't know how that worked, but it took them three weeks to break through. So Michael then, just like Persia had a prince over it that was demonic, Michael is a spiritual ruler over God's people. He struck the first blows. And though the, dragons and his, the dragon and his angels fought back, they were defeated and tossed from heaven. So Satan was thrown down to earth. And it's at that time that salvation is declared for God's people. In this moment, this sort of crazy battle that takes place, the darkness is not able to overcome the light. And it's at that moment, at that time, that salvation is declared for God's people. Revelation 12, now we are in verse 10, if you can keep following along. It says this, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Before this time, before all this, we're told Satan was the one who accused God's people. And after this, we're told that God's people have overcome Satan. How? How did we, this kingdom of priests, this holy nation, we who have been grafted in, we God's people, how did we, when we didn't do a lot, anything, didn't fight in this battle, how did we overcome Satan? Revelation 12, 11, the next verse gives us an answer. We, you can put we here, or they, they, we triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, our testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. This echoes Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of faith. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Our victory then, in the midst of this warfare, all this craziness, our victory is in Jesus. And in our testimony, our confession, both through mouth and through heart and through life, our confession that we belong to him and that no matter what happens, he is Lord. That's how you overcome. That's how you triumph. Through the blood of the lamb, not by your own strength, your own might, your own power, through worldly wisdom or anything the world has to offer or the world systems or any of that. You triumph one way and one way only through the blood of the lamb. Through the one who was born to this woman, from whom the time he was born, this great dragon is trying to devour. The darkness is trying to overcome the light, but a light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not been able to overcome it. That's the text and the theme of this series. A light shines. 
And all of this strikes a major shift in the Bible's storyline. In the Old Testament, we find stories, at least two of them that we know of, of Satan able to come into the presence of God. And how this worked exactly, again, they don't tell us. Some think it's metaphor. Some think it's just, again, like sort of a, um, an allegory. But regardless, it talks about it in such a way that Satan's able to come into the presence of God along with the angels. And we see him accuse God's people, just as he did with Job. We know that one. And he also accused Joshua, the high priest, in Zechariah chapter 3. Comes in and accuses Joshua. So he's able to do that in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, things shift. I'm getting ready to, to finish up here in just a couple minutes. Things shift when we come to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Amazing, amazing passage. Jesus sends out not 12 of his disciples, but 72 followers in pairs. And he gives them, he says, power and authority to heal the sick, to raise the dead, and to cast out demons. And he says, go do this. No instructions, though, by the way. He just says, go do it. And then they, the 36 pairs of them go all into the surrounding regions, and they were told they do this, and they come back. And they're like pumped. I mean, wouldn't you be? I mean, they're excited. These are just nobodies. And they go out and they come back and they say to Jesus, even the demons submit to us. Like, what is going on here? Like, two minutes ago, I was a nobody. Now I'm wandering around. I'm like, demon, get out. And that demon screams and runs. Like, I kind of like this. And Jesus actually tells them, that's great, that's great, and you should be happy. You should be more happy that you are part of the kingdom of God. But then he gives this really cryptic statement that again has all kinds of layers of meaning. He says, when they return, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw Satan fall like lightning. And it's this beautiful sort of statement, but you think of this as these people are going around and they're, all these disciples are doing this and the works of the enemy are being destroyed, which is why Jesus came. You know, the blind are being restored to sight are given sight, the crippled, the lame are being healed and are walking again, dead are being raised, people who are tormented by demons are being cast out, all the works of the enemy are being systematically destroyed, and Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Like, as you're doing this, I see him losing power. As you're doing this, I see his kingdom weakening. I see you putting a dent in this thing that he's trying to do. The kingdom of heaven is advancing, and the gates of hell can't prevail against it. A light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Some translations, and I love this one, say the darkness cannot resist it, which gives a whole different sort of idea that when the light goes out in power in this war, that the darkness can't resist it. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Then in John 12, speaking about his impending crucifixion, the salvation of those throughout the earth, Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. And now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So again, there's a lot going on here. You're holding some things in tension. Scholars call it the already but not yet of the kingdom. That there's a fullness that's coming, and we won't see that realized until Jesus, his second coming, which we're in preparation for in this Advent season. But in the meantime... In the meantime, damage is being done to the dominion of darkness. The light continues to shine. 
Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out at some point once and for all. The war of Revelation 12 happened at some point in Jesus' life and ministry. And the victory flag was raised through Jesus' death, resurrection, and, and ascension to the throne. There's powerful language about this reality that he triumphed over the powers. And it says that he, this is old uh, military language from first century, uh, you know, Israel and that culture. He said that he paraded them through the streets naked. Like he put them to shame. So the war has been won. He did that with Satan cast down to earth. In Revelation 12, 12, so keep going, a loud voice from heaven celebrates the victory of God's people through Jesus, the lamb who's overcome, but also gives a warning. This is how I'm going to kind of close. Revelation 12, 12 says this, Satan is cast down and cast out. Jesus is victorious, but he says, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury. And why? Because he knows that his time is short. He's been cast out of heaven. He's not overcome. He's been defeated through the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. And someday we'll realize all of the fullness and beauty of that and the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem all coming down. But until then, Satan's here. And he knows that his time is short. And then raging on earth, right? The dragon first goes on the attack against the woman, the nation of Israel, but she's hidden in the wilderness. So he turns to attack others. Revelation 12, 17, to close this off. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, then he defines it, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Satan once stood before God to accuse us, then tried to devour Jesus. Now, though no longer he can accuse the saints of God, he will try to destroy us in any way possible. Last slide. Christmas is about, or Christmas, excuse me, is a celebration a reminder of God's gift of Jesus for the world's salvation. But Christmas is also about war. Let me close with this. Revelation 12, 12 says, like to, re to go back, he's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. In other words, he's a defeated enemy. He knows that. And he wants to take as many people with him as possible. And he has no idea of when Jesus is coming back again, and that will be his once and for all end, Satan. So he understands in ways that necessarily we don't that his time is short. So my challenge to you this morning as we close is do you recognize that your time is short too? And I don't mean that in some morbid way, like that you need to be obsessed with your death and thinking about that. But what I am saying is do you recognize that you have an enemy who's recognizes that his time is short and he's living every moment of his life, however you want to define that, in order to bring darkness. Your time, we're told over and over and over again in the New Testament, is short. Are you aware of that to the point where you're living every moment of your life 
to bring light. I said this to a friend many months ago about my approach to the youth group. I said, the enemy isn't casual in his approach, so I can't be casual in mine. When it comes to talking about Jesus and bringing the light, if we have an enemy that is raging and filled with fury and knows his time is short, but the best we can do is show up for church once a month, maybe get a devotion in here and there and kind of live our lives for ourselves and comfort, that's not great. And you say, yeah, but I mean, Jesus has conquered and Jesus has overcome. Yeah, the war is won. There's a ton of battles going on. And he's trying to bring people down, including you. If he's casual in his approach, you can't be casual in yours. And the good news of Christmas, though, that what gives you the power is the Holy Spirit. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So when you start to go out in light, to go out in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you're guaranteed not always little battles will be won, but there's victory. And you can live from a place of victory. And I don't mean in some weird prosperity, gospel prosperity type of thing sense. I don't mean that. I mean, you can live in eternal security and the knowledge that you're empowered by the one who holds you. Nothing can snatch you from his hand. If the enemy is casual, isn't casual in his approach, we can't be casual in ours. If he knows that his time is short, we have to recognize that as light bearers, as image bearers, as God's ambassadors, that our time is short and that we have to make the most of it. Christmas is about warfare. Guessing you didn't think Revelation 12 and a dragon was gonna come in this morning. But I hope it sticks with you. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you have overcome, that by your blood you have overcome, that you are the one, the lamb, who was slain before the foundations of the world, that you are the one who everything was created through and for and by, that you are the one who will sustain us now and for all of eternity. Our trust is in you, fully in you. We give ourselves to you and let us recognize the true, true meaning of Christmas this year. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. Thank you.